Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of In the Shadows, our immigration policy podcast, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. This week, we are going to be talking with Professor Veronica Finkelstein about the Violence Against Women Act um, and how that can lead to potentially a path to um, permanent resident status for many immigrants. So welcome. Thank you for being here, Professor. Thank you for having me. So to begin, we typically like to just have our guests explain their background, how they've gotten to where they are, um, and just generally what you do. So you introduced me as professor. I wear two hats. Uh, By day, I'm an assistant United States attorney and senior litigation counsel for the Department of Justice. I specifically work for the United States Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And, of course, I'm happy to be here today speaking in my personal capacity, not officially on behalf of the Department of Justice. And by night, I am an adjunct professor of law at Emory Law and Rutgers Law and a practice professor of law at Drexel Law. So that is my background and qualifications. Um, To give you a general sense of how I ended up at the Department of Justice, I went to law school during a time period when the economy was very good and coming out of law school, anybody could basically get any job that they wanted. And I really wanted to be at a big firm. I wanted to do commercial work. I didn't want to do anything emotional or having to do with victims. Um, And I had a great job at a firm. And I found that after hmm, several years, it became really repetitive. And I did want to have more of a general practice. And that is how I found my way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And today I have a very, very broad practice. I do all sorts of civil affirmative work. So cases where the United States is suing on behalf of the people, healthcare fraud cases, procurement fraud cases. I do a wide variety of civil defensive work, um, defending the United States as an employer in employment discrimination cases, as a uh, property owner in tort cases, I handle immigration cases, a wide variety of different types of civil defensive work. And then I also handle criminal child exploitation work. Um, My office does handle immigration cases. We handle both civil cases and criminal cases that have an immigration element to them. But of course, immigration work is also done by a variety of different components at the Department of Justice, including but not limited to the Executive Office for Immigration Review, the Immigration and Employee Rights Section in the Civil Rights Division at Maine Justice in Washington, D.C., the Office of Immigration Litigation, which is part of the Civil Division in Washington, D.C., and, of course, the Department of Homeland Security. Great. Um, So I guess we can jump right in and start talking about the Violence Against Women Act, or uh, we'll refer to it probably as VAWA. and if you could tell us what that is and what DO, well, I mean, you did kind of mention which um, DOJ agencies work generally, but which ones handle these VAWA cases? 
So the Violence Against Women Act, which is a mouthful, and I also will call it VAWA, uh, that's a federal law. It was signed originally by President Bill Clinton on September 13, 1994. And since that time, um, subsequent Congresses and presidents have renewed and made some changes over the years to VAWA. Uh, as a general matter, the law provides a significant amount of money, over a billion dollars, towards investigating and prosecuting violent crime. Um, it imposes automatic and mandatory restitution for certain types of cases, and um, it creates an avenue by which prosecutors can be sued civilly, or there can be civil redress if there is a case that's brought to the prosecutor's attention and it's not litigated or prosecuted. It also established a part of the Department of Justice called the Office on Violence Against Women, and that office oversees a whole variety of grants and programs that are related to VAWA. And in terms of criminal prosecution, uh, that's generally supervised by the Criminal Division's Organized Crime and Gang Section. But then, of course, as you alluded to, and as I'm sure we'll discuss, there are also implications for immigration cases. So all of those components of the Department of Justice that touch on immigration cases could have some involvement in immigration cases where VAWA is raised. Okay, so then as we know, obviously, VAWA stands for the Violence Against Women's Act. So I guess more specifically, what types of domestic violence or sexual violence cases has your office um, handled? So from a criminal point of view, VAWA is really interesting because it took certain types of cases that maybe would have been handled previously on a statewide level or at a more local level, and it made them cases that would be handled on a federal level. So when I think about VAWA, I think about five general classic categories of crimes that are now prosecuted by the Department of Justice, um, interstate travel to commit domestic violence, interstate stalking, interstate travel that's designed to violate a protection order, domestic assault by a habitual offender, and certain types of firearm cases um, that are related. And more recently, there have been changes to VAWA to add an additional type of criminal prosecution that the Department of Justice would handle that has to do with uh, cybercrime, specifically exposing intimate uh, material about a victim through the internet. And so VAWA really created the situation where, at least in terms of criminal prosecution, setting aside the immigration implications, it took crimes that had always been prosecuted to some degree, stalking, violation of protective orders, domestic violence, but it took them from being more municipal, local, statewide crimes to being the type of crimes that the Department of Justice would prosecute at a federal level. And that created some more uniformity, some additional penalties. And of course, VAWA created the possibility for there to be funding for prosecuting these types of crimes. So um, my office has a section that handles in the criminal division all of these different types of cases. And we handle them um, for any crime that arises from or is related to the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, which is the Philadelphia area and its suburbs. Of course, the U.S. Attorney's offices, we're split into districts just like the federal courts are. So Pennsylvania is split into three districts, Western, Eastern, and Middle. And my office handles all of these types of criminal cases that arise in the Eastern part of the state. There's just so much that's um, that VAWA does. 
but I think what's particularly interesting to me is what is it like to try one of these cases and like more specifically what is it um, like how do gender stereotypes play into these cases um, and how does that impact male or non-binary survivors? Trying these cases is very difficult. I would say that any kind of criminal case that involves victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, is always a very difficult case. It's difficult for a variety of different reasons. I would say one of the primary difficulties is that victims don't often want to come forward. They're afraid. They're unwilling. Perhaps by the time the case is being investigated or the time is tried, they previously were at odds with the um, accused, with the person who committed the violence, and then by the time you're investigating or you're at trial, the victim and the accused have reconciled, and so maybe the victim doesn't want to cooperate. So they're always incredibly challenging in terms of working with victims. Um, I'm very lucky at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We have an excellent unit that coordinates with victims and works with victims, and they do a lot of smoothing the groundwork of making it possible to deal with victims, but that's always a challenge in these types of criminal cases. It's very, it's personal and it hits home. And I think that is especially true with non-traditional victims. So with victims who are male or with victims who were targeted as a result of their membership in other protected classes, perhaps because of their sexual orientation, they are even more afraid to come forward than other victims may be willing to because they're afraid of the stigma of coming forward. So that makes it very difficult. And then, of course, when you're prosecuting a case, you're thinking about presenting the case to the jury, to a fact finder, and you always have to think about the optics of a case, um, whether or not a jury is likely to believe, for example, that a man could be a victim of violence by a female aggressor. All of those social stereotypes, whether they're true or not, you can't ignore the fact that they exist. And when you are a litigator who's trying a case, you have to be thinking about not only what do the facts prove and what do I think I can prove, but what is the jury likely to think as they are hearing these facts? What is the jury likely to bring from their background in analyzing the case? And so, you know, in a lot of ways, it can be challenging when you have a victim who is not what society might see as a traditional victim of domestic violence or stalking um, because you have to overcome the hurdle in getting that victim to want to come forward, to be willing to cooperate in the investigation, to being a witness at trial, and then you have to overcome some of the stereotypes that your jurors might bring to analyzing the evidence in that case. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I think it's also very misleading. Um, the act is called the Violence Against Women Act, right? So it's very misleading in that some people might not know that it also covers not just females um, in these types of situations. So in a hypothetical situation, if you were to have two cases, right, identically the same factually, but you had a female survivor and then a male survivor or a non-binary survivor, how do you think that would affect um, the outcome or just generally how you would prosecute that case? Well, that brings up a really important topic, which is prosecutorial discretion. So that's one of the great things about being a prosecutor and being at the Department of Justice is 
we really are the Department of Justice, not the Department of Winning. We try to bring cases that we think are meritorious cases that are the right kind of cases. We try to vindicate the rights of victims. And so I'm not constrained, thankfully, in my resource choices to have to pick and choose between the cases. I have the freedom and the flexibility to bring the cases that I think are meritorious. That being said, um, any kind of prosecution is going to be limited by the kind of evidence that you can present. And if you have a witness who is unwilling to testify because um, that witness is not a traditional victim of domestic violence, doesn't want to become known as a victim of domestic violence, doesn't want to be seen in his or her or their community as being involved in domestic violence, then, then that can be really harmful in terms of my ability to bring a case. And so I don't know that I would say that prosecutors are picking and choosing which cases they bring based on the optics of it, but it is not realistic to say that these gender stereotypes and these general stereotypes in the world play no impact in which cases get brought. Because for sure, if a victim is not cooperative or a victim doesn't come forward, that has some impact on the case. And if you can't present the type of evidence that you need to prevail, that's going to impact the case. So I, I think that um, it's really interesting how um, VAWA has had a lot of positive impact on cases being brought. It's opened up avenues for litigation and prosecution that didn't exist before. But it's not without its problems because there are still victims out there whose rights need to be vindicated. Um, and especially when we start talking about how VAWA interacts with the immigration process, yes, VAWA creates some paths that provide opportunities to those who are in the immigration process, but also you have victims who don't want to come forward because they fear the government. They're afraid that if they are a witness in a criminal case that, um, you know, they're going to be targeted for some kind of immigration consequence like removal. And so it, it's really, it's challenging. It's challenging because these victims are not always your traditional, classic, white-collar crime-type victims that are a little more reliable in terms of their cooperation in the prosecution and you know, their, their willingness to be public about what's happened to them. Talking about non-traditional victims, we, um, this podcast is focused on immigration. Um, so how does... VAWA relate to immigration cases generally? Well, people who are here without legal status are at very high risk of being victims of violence, period. And that includes domestic violence. So it is clear that many of the victims of domestic violence are also people who may find themselves in the immigration process if they're not already in the immigration process. People who are here without status are vulnerable to being taken advantage of financially, they're vulnerable to being trafficked, they're vulnerable to being abused in a wide variety of different ways. So that's sort of um, sort of the uh, negative end, that, that people in the immigration process find themselves being on the victim end more often, perhaps, than others do. There is one positive thing, however, which is that um, through passing VAWA, the legislature created a possibility that people who might otherwise not be eligible for immigration benefits could petition on their own to get immigration benefits and to get a green card, a resident status, on the grounds that they have a close 
personal relationship with a U.S. citizen or with a permanent resident who's been abusing them. So, of course, that doesn't diminish all of the harms of someone being a victim of abuse, but one of the good things about VAWA is that it created a path to some more stability that would allow victims of domestic abuse to no longer be vulnerable because of their immigration status. Yeah, I think that that's really important. And I know that in a previous episode we discussed um, with Danny from Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, um, all of the different ways in which domestic abusers can manipulate immigrants, especially if the domestic abuser is like a U.S. citizen and they're depending on that person for citizenship. Um, So it's really great that there's this path available. Can you talk a little bit um, about who is eligible to file a self-petition and what that process would be like? So the beauty of VAWA is that typically if somebody is not a U.S. resident or not a U.S. citizen and they're applying for derivative status, they have to have the cooperation of the U.S. resident or the U.S. citizen. So let's just take a a hypothetical example. Let's say that you and I are married. You're a U.S. citizen. I am not. You can petition and on my behalf, you can get immigration benefits for me if we meet certain criteria. But, of course, that assumes that you and I are in a relationship where we're cooperating with each other. And, of course, for victims of abuse, that's not possible. They're being manipulated or taken advantage of in many circumstances by the U.S. citizen or the U.S. permanent resident. So VAWA allows the victim, the person who does not have residency or citizenship, to file their own petition, and they don't need the cooperation of the U.S. citizen or the permanent resident. So that would apply to a spouse of somebody who's been abused by a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, um, as well as the children of that petitioning spouse who are under the age of 21. A VAWA self-petition could be filed by a child who was abused by a U.S. citizen or permanent resident parent, and it can also be filed by an abused child through an abused parent, so with or without the cooperation of the abused parent. Um, And it also applies to a parent who's been abused by a U.S. citizen child who is at least 21 years old. So there's a whole class of people who, through VAWA, now have their own right to try to seek a green card and residency status. They no longer need the cooperation of the family member who's been abusive to them. And I do think that's great because we see a lot of situations where – you know, U.S. permanent residents or U.S. citizens use the status of immigration against the victim, saying that if you go to the police, you go to the authorities, we'll report you to ICE. And then that's a whole other fear and adds a whole other other layer of um, just unnecessary barriers to seeking help. So Yeah, it takes away that threat. Right. It, it takes away the power that the abuser has, not only does the abuser have often financial power and psychological power, but it it takes away that power that the abuser has to say, if you don't, you know, cooperate with me, if you go forward, if you report the abuse, there'll be immigration consequences for you. Now the victim has his or her or their own path Mm -hmm. to seek permanent status. And that, you know, takes away that, that potential threat, which is for many victims, a bigger threat than, financial consequences. The idea that they'll be separated from their U.S.-born child, 
um, that they may not be able to reenter the United States. In some ways, those are more serious consequences for many people than even financial consequences, than even being abused. The idea of having to leave your child behind and not be able to come back to the country and see your child is, is an awfully big threat. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Um, are there other options available if a self-petition is to fail? So um, just as a general matter, a self-petition sounds very simple in practice, but it is actually a relatively complicated process. So there is a form that the applicant has to file. It is a form I-360, and then the applicant has to provide el evidence of eligibility. And that second part, the evidence of eligibility, is often the difficult part. Think about it practically. If someone is a victim of ab abuse, it is likely that other people who would be witnesses are also afraid to come forward. And the burden is on the applicant, on the petitioner. The burden is on the victim who is trying to claim status to prove the marriage, in the case of a marriage, um, the familial relationship, in the case of a child, the abuse, all of the circumstances around it. And that can be incredibly difficult. Uh, based on 2021 statistics, about 31% of petitions fail, which is not an insignificant amount. That's about a third of petitions fail. And often it is because the victim cannot produce the kind of evidence that is necessary to support the petition. Not because there's no underlying merit, not because the petitioner wasn't a victim, but because the evidence just isn't there. So in that kind of case where a petition fails, there are some options. Um, an appeal is an option. The petitioner is allowed to reapply. There's a limit on when and how often reapplications are permitted, but it is an avenue. And then there are other options, uh, options like a U visa. There's other immigration options that a victim might want to pursue. But the fact that the burden is on the petitioner to prove eligibility means that victims are really well served to have good advocates in this process because it, it, it is not a default file an application, it will be approved sort of rubber stamping process. It is, there's an actual evidentiary inquiry into whether or not the applicant or the petitioner has the right status and is eligible and was indeed a victim of abuse. That's, I had never thought of it from that perspective before, but when you present it like that, it makes a lot of sense that this is it's great that it's there, but it is difficult to achieve, especially there's so many um, disparities in like access to legal services that immigrants have. I feel like that can make it even more difficult, um, just like in an asylum case, how you're well served to have a good advocate. In this case, you are as well. So it's interesting to think about. Um, the next kind of question that I have about that is, what if you have a victim who's um, they're an immigrant victim of abuse, they're in removal proceedings, but they've come forward and your office has their case. In those types of cases, as a prosecutor, would you mention VAWA as an option or um, how involved is your office in helping immigrant victims like get these other avenues to residency? So this is where the victim services at my office really comes in handy. They are amazing. They really are. They know all the available options for all of the different victims. They know 
state organizations they can put them in touch with. They know nonprofits they can put victims in touch with. And, you know, for anybody who is a necessary witness or cooperating in some way with a criminal case, we certainly want to do what we can to point them in the right direction. And we don't want there to be collateral consequences to having been a witness in a criminal case. Uh, I'll be honest with you that sometimes options are limited. It depends on that witness's status. But we do generally do what we can to try to point victims in the right direction. And there are some good resources out there. I mean, that's one of the benefits of Wawa. It created grants and programs that have allowed nonprofits to spring up that can help um, individuals with these sorts of petitions. Um, it created avenues for funding some of the needs of these individuals. And so we, we do what we can to try to provide a full range of services to witnesses and victims who are going to testify in our criminal cases. In immigration cases, it, it can be a little bit trickier. We're adverse in those cases generally. Um, but certainly being the Department of Justice, we you know try to do the right thing. And if somebody has a meritorious petition pending or has some kind of status pending, we certainly take that into account. And we respect the entirety of the process. The same part of the immigration process that we would litigate on one side is the part of the process that uh, a lawyer would litigate on the other side. And certainly there are many people who have meritorious grounds for residency. And where those people come forward and prove those grounds, they should have that residency granted to them. And we, we're not trying to stand in the way of that. It's definitely trickier in immigration cases, though, because oftentimes there's so many interlocking, complicated claims going on at the same time. But the, the beauty of a VAWA petition is that it is it does provide a path for a victim of abuse. And it's got some benefits as compared to U visas. Um, and uh, once you get that residency, then you no longer, as a victim, have to worry about your status. And, and that can sort of supersede all of these other immigration issues. But it is, I'll grant you that it is complicated in the immigration context. It's not entirely straightforward. So I guess based, I, we've heard a lot about, a lot about the difficulties um, and the intricacies of doing a VAWA self-petition. So I guess I want to ask you, what are the benefits um, of VAWA generally? And once you have your day in court, So let me answer that in two ways. First, I think that as a law, VAWA has done some really tremendous good. The first thing it's done is it has gotten the Department of Justice, the federal level of prosecution, involved in cases that, frankly, state prosecutors may not have had the resources to handle on the same level. That's the beauty of being at the Department of Justice. We have the resources we need to try our cases at the highest possible level and get justice for the victims. And that is a really huge benefit of VAWA that I don't want to undersell. The funding that comes along with VAWA and the attention that comes along with VAWA are important. That is money that goes to organizations that are doing good work. It's money that goes to the Department of Justice to bring these cases. And all of that means more justice for victims. And, you know, I like to think that it probably has some deterrent effects. The more prosecutions you have, the fewer hopefully, instances of violence that you have going forward, that the, the prosecutions itself help to impact violence against victims in the country. In terms of the benefits for a VAWA petitioner, if granted, um, that individual gets 
permanent resident status. That person gets a green card, no longer has any ability for anyone to hold over that victim's head, his or her or their immigration status. And that is hugely powerful. It is the first step to going forward to a normal life. Nothing can undo the effects of violence. A prosecution does not remove the damage that a victim has experienced. No victim of a crime can ever be completely made whole financially, even by restitution. But that first step on a path towards being in the country, being able to work legally, being able to have status, take advantage of all of the opportunities of residency is huge. And so, of course, it, it, of course, a victim would rather have never been victimized in the first place, but it is a huge benefit that VAWA provided that helps victims step off on the right foot um, and move on with their lives, notwithstanding the negative things that have happened to them. Yeah, I think that that's really important. Um, I definitely think that the act does a lot of great work, um, and it's kind of serving its purpose to address gaps um, in services for survivors of domestic violence, because I know that there's like a lot of funding um, that goes along with this. So aren't, do you think that VAWA is addressing these gaps effectively? Um, and then like a second part of that question is, do you think that there's policy concerns for a spending bill this large? Well, one of the positives about VAWA is that it has been renewed over the years since uh, you know President Clinton left office. And with each renewal and reauthorization, there have been some changes. And I think that those changes have been nicely responsive to what we as prosecutors have been seeing out there in the field. So thinking about the most recent reauthorization on March 16th, 2022, that President Biden um, signed into law, there are some changes there. Um, extension of the grant programs through 2027. That's critical. If you're a nonprofit and you're waiting year to year to find out whether or not you're going to have money to operate, that really hampers your ability to do work on behalf of victims. Knowing that the money is appropriated and it's there for four years is it's critical. It's really important. Um, the most recent uh, version of VAWA also increases services for LGBTQ plus victims, which I think is very important. So organizations that perhaps are not oriented exclusively towards violence against women, but violence against marginalized groups in general, now can take advantage of VAWA. And I think that's important to drawing attention to the fact that victims take all different shapes and sizes, backgrounds, and types. And one big change that I think is critical and should be very positive going forward is creating a federal crime for what we might in day-to-day -day speech call revenge porn types of cybercrime, exposing sexual images or videos of victims, because that is a way that victims are um, threatened and, and exploited by those who are abusing them. And so now there is a federal crime that can be prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Um, and of course, the, there are some empirical studies that show that violence has decreased since VAWA was first enacted. We can always do better. And, you know, Catherine, you point out one of the major limitations, which is any big spending bill with lots and lots of money, you have lots of money going lots of different places, and it's hard to police. And there's always this tension 
in spending and, and frankly, attention and prosecution as well. Do you put a lot of safeguards on when you're distributing the funds, which will delay the funds being distributed, but give you a little more confidence that they're going to the right places? Or do you distribute the funds more quickly and then investigate after the fact and prosecute those who violate? And honestly, there's always a tension there. Since the pandemic, the attitude of Congress generally has been get the money out, appropriate it, spend it, focus on speed, get it to the organizations who need it, get it to the victims who need it. And then after the fact, we can do more investigating, we can do more auditing, we can try to determine whether the money went to the right place and we can criminally prosecute and sometimes civilly prosecute those who have misappropriated funds. And there's benefits to that, but of course there's also challenges because there are certainly pockets of the population that are going unserved and one segment of the population is exactly what you're highlighting uh, here is that LGBTQ plus victims, those organizations may not be taking advantage of this funding. Those organizations may not be benefiting from some of these increased changes to VAWA. And, and frankly, some of those victims may not realize that they are covered by VAWA in part because the name of the act has the word woman in it, which suggests that it only applies to, to female victims, which is not actually how the law is written. And several times, several times, Congress has tried to make that clear through amendment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it trickles down to the general population. Right. Uh, that's a great segue into our next question, because I think one of um, the main issues with VAWA is the name. Um, and we learned in Legreg with Dean Frankel that like the name of an act is almost as important as like the words contained in it. Because if you're trying to get public support around this or help people understand what it does generally, um, it's good to have a name that people are going to understand. So do you think um, like, what do you think the impact of this name, uh, Violence Against Women Act, has on non-traditional victims of domestic violence? So now you're tracing me back to my days as a speech communication scholar, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, but I do think it's true that language has an impact on reality, that the words we use to describe victims the way we think about victims has a way of communicating to the society as a whole who is and is not a proper victim. And by focusing on women and domestic violence, it does send a message that women tend to be victims, sort of by inference that people who are not win women tend to be aggressors. And that is not always true. Victims can take all different forms. Aggressors can take all different forms. So I think it it tends to reinforce and perpetuate a stereotype. But more than that, I think that it, it perhaps means that people who could or should avail themselves of the immigration benefits of VAWA, especially if there's also a language barrier, may simply not recognize that the law exists. They may skip right over it if they, you know, see some kind of immigration bulletin or if they're trying to research their options, they may see VAWA spelled out Violence Against Women Act and think to themselves, I'm not a woman, that has nothing to do with me. And so 
you know, it's a challenge. In, in addition to reinforcing stereotypes, it probably, the name of it probably does inadvertently discourage some potential victims who could take advantage of the immigration benefits. And, and that just seems like a shame because the intent of the act could not have been more clear. Uh, today, we don't have too many bipartisan acts that Congress passed. There's not a lot that Democrats and Republicans agree upon. VAWA is generally one of them. Everyone agrees that victims should have their rights uh, addressed in appropriate ways. Some of those appropriate ways, including creating paths to permanent residency. And it's a shame that because of the press around VAWA on the focus on the name and perhaps focus on particular stereotypical victim-aggressor relationships that people are falling through the cracks who should be able to take advantage of VAWA's protection. I think that's an interesting point that you um, spoke on, that the language barriers add an additional challenge to understanding that this act does, in fact, protect not just women, um, I know when I do legal research and I see something, just a title of something, and I think, oh, instantly, that doesn't you know, pertain to the research that I need or whatever I'm looking up, um, I'll just go right past it. So I see how that can easily be done um, in this circumstance. So my next question for you um, is what are some things that you think that we can do generally just to overcome or fight these stereotypes? I think grassroots level education is critical. I think that funding organizations that don't necessarily do litigation or even really file petitions, but that are boots on the ground out where victims are, that have relationships in the community, who victims are willing to come forward and speak with, is critical, right? Connecting people with resources is very hard to do from a top-down level. Um, victims don't come forward. They're afraid. Uh, they're afraid of being, if, if they don't have legal status, they're afraid of being identified and put in immigration proceedings. And so having people who are there in the community who are trusted, who can connect victims with resources is really, really important. And this is just my personal opinion, but that works best on a grassroots level. So small organizations that are in a community that have people working for the organization, perhaps, who were in the same shoes as potential victims now, who speak the language and have the kind of backgrounds that are similar or that reverberate with victims. That's really, really important. Um, and I think VAWA has done one great thing, which is created some really great partnerships between the Department of Justice and state level and local prosecutors. And I think that that's another important relationship to foster going forward because they're the ones who sometimes make referrals to the Department of Justice. They're the ones who identify cases that otherwise might be classified as more of a straightforward domestic abuse type case. and call up the Department of Justice and say, you know, hey, this, this might be an interstate case that your office should take. And that, that relationship, educating law enforcement at various levels so that they can cooperate with each other, creating partnerships between the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies and state and local level law enforcement agencies so that they can cooperate and investigate and work together, that's all really, really important. And VAWA has opened up the possibility for that to happen creative an incentive for that to happen. And I think encouraging that going forward is also really important. Okay. So I, those are all really great takes. Um, and I think it's really, 
the grassroots aspect of that is really important. Um, I think a lot of times we, as people, we can identify these issues and we see that there's so many happening. We feel kind of helpless, like, well, this is just like a big issue with a big federal spending or big federal spending bill. Like, how are we supposed to make any impact? And I think that everybody who cares about this issue locally in their communities can find an organization that they can work with to kind of help change these stereotypes, which is really important. So our final question for you is, um, if we were to rename the Violence Against Women Act to be more inclusive, what would we rename it? Oh boy, this is a tough one. Uh, I'm going to throw out there as an option, and I don't know that it's the best option, but I think one critical focus of any renaming effort would be taking the word uh, women out to make it more inclusive. And I would, I would probably not substitute in another class, because I think that's, part, that's somewhat limiting, and victims can take all different shapes and forms, and victims identify themselves differently. Uh, I'm also keenly aware of the political climate in which using a different term might make VAWA less palatable to certain legislators. And I think one of the great things about VAWA is that it is generally uh, a piece of legislation that has bipartisan support. So I'm going to throw out there my not terribly exciting, but I think inclusive suggestion of the Combating Violence Act. But I think what's most important is that there be an inclusive name, that, that any victim feels like they could come forward without being marginalized because of the name of the act, and every victim can see themselves as somebody who might be protected by the act. Definitely. I think that's very important. My non-creative brain came up with Violence Against Victims Act (laughs) to keep this... Violence Against Victims. That's good. V-A-V. Vava? (laughs) Vava. But yeah, I do think that um, it's important to make sure that everyone knows that they're protected by this. Um, And I think that there are a lot of steps that we need to take in order to make that well known. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I think we had, I think it was a really good discussion and we didn't solve any problems here, but I think you gave us a lot of really great ideas about where we can start to move forward to just um, make this type of legislation more accessible to survivors of domestic violence across the board, no matter who they are. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thanks for bringing attention to this and other important issues. Thank you for listening to another episode of In the Shadows, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. Thank you to Assistant United States Attorney Veronica Finkelstein for talking to us about the good and bad of the Violence Against Women Act. Join us next week as Maria and I recap everything we learned this season and talk about what's next in advocacy for domestic violence and immigrant rights. As always, if you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799 7233. If you live in Pennsylvania, you can reach out to the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence at pcadv.org, and you can find those resources listed in our episode summary. See you next week.